I appreciate that beautiful and moving prayer of Brother Backman. My brethren and sisters, I have chosen a text this morning. It is familiar to all of you. It is the first article of our faith. It is the pivotal position of our religion. It is significant that in setting forth the primary elements of our doctrine, the Prophet Joseph put this number one. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. The preeminence given that declaration is in accord with another statement the Prophet made. Said he, It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. These tremendously significant and overarching declarations are in harmony with the words of the Lord in His great intercessory prayer. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I was handed a tract the other day. It was written by a critic, an enemy of the Church whose desire is to undermine the faith of the weak and the unknowing. It repeats fallacies that have been parroted for a century and more. It purports to set forth what you and I, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, believe. Without wishing to argue with any of my friends of other faiths, many of whom I know and for whom I have the highest regard, I take this occasion to set forth my position on this most important of all theological subjects. I believe without equivocation or reservation in God the Eternal Father. He is my Father, the Father of my Spirit, and the Father of the spirits of all men. He is the great Creator, the ruler of the universe. He directed the creation of this earth on which we live. In His image, man was created. He is personal. He is real. He is individual. He has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. In the account of the creation of the earth, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Could any language be more explicit? Does it demean God, as some would have us believe, that man was created in his express image? Rather, it should stir within the heart of every man and woman a greater appreciation for himself or herself as a son or daughter of God. Paul's words to the Corinthian saints are as applicable to us today as they were to those to whom he wrote. Said he, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. I remember the occasion of more than fifty years ago when, as a missionary, I was speaking in an open-air meeting in Hyde Park, London. As I was presenting my message, a heckler interrupted to say, 
Why don't you stay with the doctrine of the Bible, which says in John, God is a spirit. I opened my Bible to the verse he had quoted and read to him the entire verse. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I said, of course God is a spirit. And so are you in the combination of spirit and body that makes of you a living being. And so am I. Each of us is a dual being of spiritual entity and physical entity. All know of the reality of death when the body dies. And each of us also knows that the spirit lives on as an individual entity and that at some time, under the divine plan, made possible by the sacrifice of the Son of God, there will be a reunion of spirit and body. Jesus' declaration that God is a spirit no more denies that he has a body than does the statement that I am a spirit while also having a body. I do not equate my body with his in its refinement, in its capacity, in its beauty and radiance. His is eternal, mine is mortal. That only increases my reverence for him. I worship him in spirit and in truth. I look to him as my strength. I pray to him for wisdom beyond my own. I seek to love him with all my heart, might, mind, and strength. His wisdom is greater than the wisdom of all men. His power is greater than the power of nature, for he is the creator omnipotent. His love is greater than the love of any other, for his love encompasses all of his children. And it is his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his sons and daughters of all generations. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the Almighty, of whom I stand in awe and reverence. It is he to whom I look in fear and trembling. It is he whom I worship, and unto whom I give honor and praise and glory. He is my heavenly Father, who has invited me to come unto him in prayer, to speak with him with the promised assurance that he will hear and respond. I thank him for the light and knowledge and understanding he has bestowed upon his children. I thank him for his voice which has spoken eternal truth with power and promise. I thank him for his revelation of himself as set forth in the Old Testament, for his declaration as set forth in the New Testament at the baptism of his beloved Son in the waters of Jordan when his voice was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I thank him for his similar declaration on the Mount of Transfiguration when he spoke again to Jesus and his apostles and angels also, when, quote, after six days, 
Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. I thank him for that voice again heard when the risen Lord was introduced to the people of this hemisphere with the voice of God declaring, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. I stand in awe and reverence and gratitude for his appearance in this dispensation when, as he introduced the risen Lord to one who had sought him in prayer, the Father declared, This is my beloved Son, hear him. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the eternal living God. I believe in him as the firstborn of the Father and the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. I believe in him as an individual, separate and distinct from his Father. I believe in the declaration of John, who opened his gospel with this majestic utterance. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe that he was born of Mary of the lineage of David as the promised Messiah, that he was in very deed begotten of the Father, and that in his birth was the fulfillment of the great prophetic declaration of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I believe that in his life he was the one perfect man to walk the earth. I believe that in his words are to be found that light and truth which, if observed, would save the world and bring exaltation to mankind. I believe that in his priesthood rests divine authority, the power to bless, the power to heal, the power to govern in the earthly affairs of God, the power to bind in the heavens that which is bound upon the earth. I believe that through his atoning sacrifice, the offering of his life on Calvary's hill, he expiated the sins of mankind, 
relieving us from the burden of sin if we will forsake evil and follow him. I believe in the reality and the power of his resurrection. I believe in the grace of God made manifest through his sacrifice and redemption, and that through his atonement without any price on our part, each of us is offered the gift of resurrection from the dead. I believe further that through that sacrifice there is extended to every man and woman, every son and daughter of God, the opportunity for eternal life and exaltation in our Father's kingdom as we hearken and obey his commandments. None so great has ever walked the earth. None other has made a comparable sacrifice or granted a comparable blessing. He is the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. I believe in Him. I declare His divinity without equivocation or compromise. I love Him. I speak His name in reverence and wonder. I worship Him as I worship His Father in spirit and in truth. I thank Him and kneel before his wounded feet and hands and side, amazed at the love he offers me. God, be thanked for his beloved Son who reached out long ago and said to each of us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He lives. The first fruits of the resurrection. I know he lives today as really, as certainly, as individually as he lived when, as the risen Lord, he beckoned his discouraged disciples to come and dine, and he taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. The scripture tells of others to whom he showed himself, and with whom he spoke as the living, resurrected Son of God. Likewise, in this dispensation, he has appeared. And those who saw him declared, And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. This is the Christ in whom I believe and of whom I testify. That knowledge comes from the word of Scripture, and that testimony comes by the power of the Holy Ghost. It is a gift, sacred and wonderful born by revelation from the third member of the Godhead. I believe in the Holy Ghost as a personage of spirit who occupies a place with the Father and the Son, 
these three comprising the divine Godhead. The importance of that place is made clear from the words of the Lord who said, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. That the Holy Ghost was recognized in ancient times as a member of the Godhead is evident from the conversation between Peter and Ananias when the latter held back a part of the price received from the sale of a piece of land. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. The Holy Ghost stands as the third member of the Godhead, the Comforter promised by the Savior, who should teach his followers all things and bring all things to their remembrance whatsoever he had said unto them, The Holy Ghost is the testifier of truth, who can teach men things they cannot teach one another. In those great and challenging words of Moroni, a knowledge of the truth of the Book of Mormon is promised by the power of the Holy Ghost. Moroni then declares, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. I believe this power, this gift, is available to us today. And so, my beloved brethren and sisters, I believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. I was baptized in the name of these three. I was married in the name of these three. I have no question concerning their reality and their individuality. That individuality was made apparent when Jesus was baptized by John in Jordan. There in the water stood the Son of God. His Father's voice was heard declaring His divine Sonship and the Holy Ghost was manifest in the form of a dove. I am aware that Jesus said that they who had seen him had seen the Father. Could not the same be said by many a son who resembles his parent? When Jesus prayed to the Father, certainly he was not praying to himself. They are distinct beings but they are one in purpose and effort. They are united as one in bringing to pass the grand divine plan for the salvation and exaltation of the children of God. In his great moving prayer in the garden before his betrayal, Christ pleaded with his Father concerning the apostles whom he loved, saying, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, 
that they also may be one in us. It is that perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost which binds these three into the oneness of the divine Godhead. Miracle of miracles and wonder of wonders, they are interested in us, and we are the substance of their great concern. They are available to each of us. We approach the Father through the Son. He is our intercessor at the throne of God. How marvelous it is that we may so speak with him. I bear witness of these great transcendent truths. I do so by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Elder Worthland, and I, too, add my welcome to a most unique body of men. You'll find men with dark hair and gray hair, some even with wider parts than others. And their personalities are just as varied as their hairstyles. <laughs> and that's the great blessing of the Council of the Twelve. For out of these divergent personalities comes a sweet unity under the inspiration of the Lord that's most unique. Welcome, welcome, Brother Joseph. In Proverbs we read, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. One of the great challenges of life for parents is, from the very beginning, has been succeeding in the very important task of rearing children. This great responsibility seems destined to bring the greatest joys and some of the greatest sorrows life has in store for us here in mortality. Every child, of course, is different, and what works for one may not elicit the correct response from another. However, I believe that second only to ensuring that each child receive an understanding of the gospel of our Lord and Savior is teaching them the joy of honest labor. I was taught this by goodly parents. How grateful I am for a father who had the patience to teach me how to work. I remember as a lad when I was only seven years old, we were remodeling our house and tearing out some of the walls. In those days, two-by-sixes were used as studding. To the studs they nailed the lath, and over the lath came the plaster. When tearing out the walls, the slats and the plaster were easy to knock off. But of course that left the nails in the two-by-sixes. Each night after the workers had finished, I had the responsibility of gathering up the two-by-sixes and taking them out to the back lawn where they stood two sawhorses. There I was to make a pile of the two-by-sixes and then one at a time put them on the sawhorses and with a crowbar remove the nails. After the nails had been pulled out of the studs, I was told to straighten them and finally throw the straightened nails 
into a large green bucket and stacked the two-by-sixes in a neat pile. There was so much in this project that was of value to me in my young life. First, I was taught to be productive, to work, to be busily engaged, and not waste my time in idleness. From the very beginning, the Lord commanded Adam to till the earth and have dominion over the beasts of the field, to eat his bread by the sweat of his brow. I have always been interested in how often the scriptures have admonished us to cease to be idle and to be productive in all of our labors. King Benjamin, in his final address, noted his example before the people by saying, I say unto you that as I have been suffered to spend my days in your service, even up to this time, I have not sought for gold nor silver, nor any manner of riches of you. And even I myself have labored with mine own hands, that I might serve you, that ye should not be laden with taxes, and that there should be nothing come upon you which was grievous to be borne. And of all these things, these things which I have spoken, ye yourselves are witnesses this day. Teaching children the joy of honest labor is one of the greatest of all gifts you can bestow upon them. I am convinced that one of the reasons for the breakup of so many couples today is the failure of parents to teach and train sons in their responsibility to provide and care for their families and to enjoy the challenge this responsibility brings. Many of us have also fallen short in instilling within our daughters the desire to bring beauty and ardor into their homes through homemaking. Oh, how essential it is that each child be taught in life the joy which comes from starting and fashioning a job that is the workmanship of their own hands. Teach children the joy of honest labor. Provide a foundation of life which builds confidence and fulfillment to each life. Happy is the man who has work he loves to do. Happy is the man who loves the work he has to do. Second, as a lad doing the job my father had assigned to me, I was taught not to waste, to conserve resources where possible. When the nails were pulled from them, the two-by-sixes could be used again, and we did use them. I have always enjoyed some of the counsel Brigham Young used to give to the saints. His counsel was so practical. Listen to what he said about waste. Pick up everything. Never consider that you have enough bread around to suffer your children to waste a crust or a crumb of it. Remember, do not waste anything, but take care of everything. If you wish to get rich, save what you get. A fool can earn money, but it takes a wise man to save and dispose of it to his advantage. I wonder what kind of signals we are sending to our children when we purchase homes that are status symbols. We waste space and resource when we buy a home larger than is needed, 
a larger home than is practical for us to afford. That we encumber ourselves with mortgages so large that it requires the income of both husband and wife to make the payments. Then we build consumer debt to the point of absorbing completely all of our disposable income, leaving no margin of safety for a rainy day that comes into everyone's life. Do, we, do not such signals from heads of household only fully feed the philosophy of, I want it now, in the lives of our children. Some even have the mistaken belief that after turning their ears away from the counsel of the prophets to avoid unnecessary debt, they can then turn to their bishops to bail them out of their foolishness. All a poor bishop can do is to weep with them and help them move to more affordable housing and then counsel them on how they can cut their losses. As I remember events in my life, I do not believe that there was any degree of difference in happiness that I enjoyed when my two brothers and I shared a single bedroom and when we had a home large enough that each of us enjoyed a bedroom. Let us teach our children the art of conservation and the elimination of waste. Third, I will never forget my consternation as I watched the workmen using the new nails as they built the walls back up and completed remodeling our home. The pile of nails that I had straightened and put into the green bucket grew and grew and were never used. I went to my father and said, wouldn't it be better to save the new nails and use the ones I had straightened? I was proud of the work I had accomplished. My father showed me something very important. He took a new nail and, using an odd angle, drove it, into, drove it into a board. He was able to drive it straight and true. Then he took one of the nails I had straightened so carefully and, using the same odd angle, hit it again and again, and soon it bent. It was impossible to drive into the board. So I learned that a used or bent nail is never as strong as a new one. But then why was my father asking me to straighten those nails? As a boy, I never remembered receiving a satisfactory answer. <laughs> it was not until I had a son of my own that I started to understand. When my son was about three years old, I took him out into the garden to help me weed. I assumed that he, being low to the ground at the time, would have a real advantage in weeding. <laughs> Unfortunately for my garden, he had a difficult time distinguishing between the weeds and the young plants. I then tried Lee at milking a cow we owned together with a neighbor. He quickly developed the hand action of a fine milker, but sadly his aim was not very good. <laughs> and whenever I checked him on him, he was always surrounded by a white pool and the milk bucket was nearly empty. He would look up at me and smile proudly and my initial incl inclination to be angry would quickly dissipate, but I was frustrated. I expected him to help me, but he only seemed to create more work. It was in such moments of frustration that I remembered straightening the nails for my father, and I began to understand. Work is something more than the final end result. It is a discipline. We must learn to do and do well before we can expect to receive tangible rewards for our labors. 
My father must have known that if he focused on the outcome of my labors, he would only become frustrated with how inadequately I did things then. So he found tasks that were difficult that would challenge me to teach me the discipline of hard work. He was using straightened nails not to rebuild our home, but to build my character. Finally, I was instructed to ta stack the two-by-sixes in a neat pile so the workmen could use them the next day. My work was never finished until this was done and the tools were put away. Let us also teach our children to see that the work assigned is carried to its completion, to take pride in what they accomplish. There is real satisfaction that comes from finishing a task, especially when it is the best work we know how to do. These lessons instilled in me the joy and appreciation for honest labor and prepared me for a time in my life when I would have the responsibility of providing for a family. The principles taught by my wise father of honest labor, not to waste, discipline, and seeing a task to its completion were basic to my success in any profession I might choose to follow. These lessons placed me in a position to face the challenges of an ever-changing world. Is this not the same lesson that Paul was preaching when he declared, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. An event occurred in my life about a month ago which impressed upon me the blessings which accrue to one over the years from good early childhood training. I was delivered a note as I arrived at the airport that one of my very best friends had passed away and her funeral was just in an hour and a half in a community 50 miles from the airport. I made a quick change from air to surface transportation and started the drive to the funeral. This great soul who had just passed away had been my primary teacher for three years during my days as a trail builder when I was eight, nine, and ten years old. As I drove to the funeral that morning, my mind was flooded with pleasant memories of an early childhood. I especially remembered the powerful example of early childhood training by goodly parents who were always there to teach, inspire, love, and give strong encouragement to chart me on the right course in life. I remember a kind aunt who lived next door who fortified and provided a second witness to the teaching of my parents. Then I remember dear sister Call, a primary teacher, who ex extended herself much beyond her classroom call. Her lessons included many field trips to teach us of life, labor, and the joy of association. Her special way of weaving her lessons into our lives gave us an understanding of our personal worth. As I drove along the highway, my heart was filled with overwhelming gratitude for parents, extended family, and church leaders who had the patience, love, and concern to build a foundation in a child during those very critical years.
Should not all children receive such a blessing early in their lives? This is the Lord's work in which we're engaged. He has charted the course and revealed the fundamental principles that will lead us back to His presence. May we have the strength and the courage to follow Him is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, in all humility and gratitude, I ask for your prayers and your faith in this great and humbling and sacred assignment that has been given me. To our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to President Ezra Taft Benson, our prophet, seer, and revelator, I pledge that I will do my best, that I will do all I can to build up the kingdom of God here upon the earth. As I left President Benson's office the other day, I was in deep shock, and still am. And I suppose that will linger for many years. But I will do my best in whatever assignment is given me. To my beloved father, I pay tribute, my earthly father, who taught me humility diligence, honesty, and trustworthiness, and a love of the Constitution of our beloved country, and also to revere and honor God's chosen servants, and especially the prophet. To my mother, who saw a glimpse of the eternity beyond several nights prior to her passing, I pay tribute also, first for life itself and then for the great lessons of life. She would never permit a shoddy performance and, in addition, made sure that us children didn't take too long to accomplish it. To my beloved wife, Elisa, she is similar, I'm sure, to Rebecca of old. And if she were one of the pioneers, even coming from perhaps New York City with a handcart, she would probably be the first to arrive. She has never put a feather in my way for church service, and she has reared our children in truth and righteousness. To our eight children, seven wonderful daughters and one noble son. <laughs> and he got along very well with these sisters. I pay tribute to them, each having their marriage sealed in the temple. To my associates through the years, I pay tribute to them who have all lifted me up 
and made me a better servant. Their names are too numerous to mention, but I honor them and pray that the Lord will always bless them. I've loved every assignment I've ever had in the kingdom, and in that service every day seemed like Sunday because it was in the service of the Lord. And now I'd like to report briefly on our experience in Europe. I thank the First Presidency that Sister Wortham and I have had to preside in the Europe area of the Church. These past two years have been thrilling and filled with tremendous experiences that we shall never forget. The following expression from a devoted Church member living in Eastern Europe vividly demonstrates what I mean. He said, If you could only see the faith and enthusiasm of our members here, believe me, our religion is the only thing left for us, and we dearly love it. Whether we live in Eastern Europe or not, this truth, like a towering mountain, stands out. Our religion is really the only thing that we have left ultimately, and we love it dearly. This eternal truth was demonstrated many times during our two-year two sojourn in the Europe area. This area stretches from the far north of Finland, Sweden, Norway to the southernmost tip of Africa and includes about 230,000 members of the Church. I'd like to share a few of the experiences that have kept our faith burning brightly. In Portugal, in the city of Funchal, on the Madeira Island, a lady by the name of Ancenso Frongo had been a nun for 20 years. As a matter of fact, she was a mother superior at the home for poor children and orphans. Toward the end of a four-year teaching assignment early in her life as a nun, doctors discovered a cancer in her throat. She, her mother had died of this same disease. Although she knew that her deteriorating health might lead to certain death, she had a strong feeling that she had not finished her work on earth. She prayed with great faith for the restoration of her health and was healed with no further problems or need for medical care. When her church decided to close the children's home where she was assigned, she maintained it herself for four years using an inheritance she had received from her deceased parents until the children living there were reared and on their own or adopted. Hearing of a new religion, she attended her first meeting of our church with a friend out of curiosity. It was held on the dirt floor of a member's garage, but the spirit of the meeting impressed her. The elders began teaching her the discussions and challenged her to be baptized. She declined saying that she had already been baptized. The elders persisted by inviting her to read the Book of Mormon. The elders told her, If this book is true, is the true word of God, then Joseph Smith is a true prophet, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. If so, you need to be baptized into God's true Church. She read the Book of Mormon and gained a strong testimony of its divinity. Later, she stopped the missionaries after a discussion of the Godhead 
and requested baptism. Just one year afterwards, she stood on the doorstep of President Reuben P. Ficklin's mission home in Lisbon. She obtained her temple recommend and could hardly wait to enter the Swiss temple to pledge sacred covenants with her Heavenly Father. In Sweden, Bishop Christer Stenhall of the Lutheran Church visited the Stockholm Temple a few days prior to dedication. He had this inspiring description of his experience as published in a prominent Swedish newspaper. And I quote, Imagine that a new, gleaming white temple with slender pinnacles and towers has been erected to the glory of God. Not a church, not a chapel, but a temple for sacred ordinances performed quietly and in solemn dignity. A temple where the innermost room is named the celestial. A temple where the faithful perform vicarious work according to Paul's statement on baptism for the dead all in consequence of the wisdom and calling of Joseph Smith. What shall we think and say about this to pretend that it does not concern us that the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, have built a temple in our midst would be conceited or condescending? Therefore, I will rejoice with them over this temple that they have erected with much sacrifice and glory to God. To experience their joy and pride over the beauty of the temple warms one's heart in a special way." End of quote. President Thomas S. Monson has given me permission to share with you his impressions when he rededicated the German Democratic Republic for the advancement of the work of the Church. I quote from him. At 7.30 a.m. April 27, 1975, we traveled to the location which had been selected for the special prayer which I felt prompted to offer in this land. We walked through the woods into a clearing overlooking the Elbe River with Meissen on the right and Dresden on the left, Meissen being the birthplace of Carl G. Mazur, the founder of Brigham Young University. During the prayer, I said, Today marks the dawning of a new beginning for this beautiful land. As I used these words, we heard the unmistakable sound of a, ro a roaster crowing, followed by the pealing of a cathedral bell in the distance. The day had been overcast, but during the prayer the sun shone brilliantly upon us, warming our bodies and giving us the assurance that our Heavenly Father was pleased with the prayer which was being offered as we returned to our automobiles. The sun disappeared from the sky and the overcast condition which previously existed once again prevailed. In his prayer of rededication, President Monson said, Heavenly Father, wilt thou open up the way that the faithful may be accorded the privilege of going to thy holy temple, there to receive their holy endowments and to be sealed as families for time and all eternity. End of quote. This prayer was offered on Sunday, April 27, 1975, at a time when any thought of a temple was beyond the realm of possibility. It was fulfilled on June 29, 1985, with a dedication of the beautiful temple in Freiburg. 
As you know, temples are now or soon will be within the reach of many members in the Europe area, from the Stockholm-Sweden Temple in the north to the Johannesburg-South Africa Temple to the south, with the London and Swiss temples in between. Many lands in this Europe area are becoming the lands of temples. The Frankfurt Temple, located in a suburb named Friedrichsdorf, which was an early settlement of the Huguenots, is, the near, is nearing completion. The building of these temples in the Europe area is a modern-day miracle. Temple work is proceeding at an accelerating pace. And then we travel to Ghana in West Africa. There the Church is growing rapidly and on a very solid footing. We traveled along the beautiful coast to a chapel that recently had been completed. After holding a meeting there, we traveled through the village of Cape Coast with President Sister Miller. As the sun was setting, we saw a large crowd of villagers, young and old and middle-aged. All were pulling on the huge net and drawing it out of the water. We stopped and inquired about what they were doing. They were pulling in the fish caught that day. In the net were large, large fish and small ones and many kinds. Each villager put his hands to the net to help bring in the catch. The thought ran through my mind of the gathering of Israel in the last days as referred to in Jeremiah. The Lord said, I will send for many fishers, and they shall fish them. That, brethren and sisters, is the mission of all of us as members of the Church to put our hands on the net and pull in thousands of fine men and women who are searching for the truth. With this kind of effort, the Europe area has pulled in these nets of converts with a 33 percent increase in the number of convert baptisms in two years. As I reflect upon our experiences in Europe, these thoughts impress me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more enduring than fame, more precious than riches, more to be desired than happiness. Understanding and living the gospel leads to the possession of a Christ-like character. The aim of each of us is to live a great and exemplary life. A noble character is needed, especially in this age when evil is rampant. And I should like to caution our youth to live the gospel and develop strong character and not indulge in those things that deviate from righteousness. Our Heavenly Father has endowed us with hearts of courage and faith, with strong wills, and with the ability to understand and to see clearly the difference between right and wrong. We mercifully, he has mercifully clothed us, each member, with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so even though the tasks of life become heavy and all those sorrow thrusts a drooping burden upon us, the light that emanates from our Savior beckons us on undismayed. A righteous self-discipline can and will rule our lives. And so, brethren and sisters, in closing, I want to say that this is the way we tried to represent the Church in Europe. I testify that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that President Ezra Taft Benson is a prophet, seer, and revelator, and that he bears the keys of the kingdom. I love this Church with all my heart and will do my best to serve.
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. I gladly and publicly join the colleagues of our quorum in publicly welcoming Elder Worthland to our ranks, he having been called by the Lord through our prophet for whom we ever pray. Joseph has been such a successful father and husband and has served the Lord with such unwearying devotion. The Holy Scriptures represent mankind's spiritual memory, and when man's connection with Scripture is severed, mortals are tragically deprived of an awareness of spiritual history, blinding the eyes of faith. Thereby shorn of true identity, mortals keep their legs intact, but each walks in his own way. Their arms are acquisitive, but do not reach out in an understanding embrace of life. Their ears function, but they no longer hear the word of the Lord. Though created in God's image, those thus severed have soon forgotten their Maker. Yet it is not surprising. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? By contrast, one of the unique features of the living Church of Jesus Christ is its ever-expanding body of fundamental spiritual knowledge about man's identity and purpose, which enlarges the memory of this people. In fact, our ninth article of faith declares that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Thus nourished by a menu blending antiquity and futurity, Church members need never faint in their minds. Instead, we can be intellectually vibrant. Lost books are among the treasures yet to come forth. Over twenty of these are mentioned in the existing scriptures. Perhaps most startling and voluminous will be the records of the lost tribes of Israel. We would not even know of the impending third witness for Christ except through the precious Book of Mormon, the second witness for Christ. This third set of sacred records will thus complete a triad of truth. Then, just as the perfect shepherd has said, My word shall also be gathered in one, and there will be one fold and one shepherd in a welding together of all the Christian dispensations of human history. Whereas previous prophets were sometimes left to surmise, as Moroni supposed the Jews also had a record of the creation from Adam on down. Ours, instead, is a time of fullness, including things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world. Moreover, and the day cometh that the words of the book which were sealed shall be read upon the housetops, and they shall be read by the power of Christ, and all things shall be revealed unto the children of men which ever have been among the children of men and which ever will be even unto the end of the earth. Thus, just as there will be many more Church members, families, wards, stakes, and temples, later on there will also be many more nourishing and inspiring scriptures. However, we must first feast worthily upon that which we already have. Without this precious spiritual perspective, the human family is seldom more than one generation away from deep doubt and even disbelief. Laman and Lemuel doubted and murmured because, wrote Nephi, they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. They were provincial, just like forgetful Israel. 
and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. If people are without the truths of God's plan of salvation for very long, some may not even believe these truths when they are taught. An untaught, rising generation comes not to believe concerning the resurrection, neither the coming of Christ. Belief in deity and in the resurrection are usually the first to go. And they brought no records with them, and they denied the being of their Creator. Our loving Father is ever anxious to dispel such ignorance. And after God had appointed that these things should come unto man, behold, then he saw that it was expedient that man should know concerning these things whereof he had appointed unto them. Therefore he sent angels to converse with them, and made known unto them the plan of redemption which had been prepared from the foundation of the world. And this he made known unto them according to their faith and repentance and their holy works. The message is ever constant and ever relevant. Is it not as necessary that the plan of redemption should be made known unto this people as well as unto their children? Is it not as easy at this time for the Lord to send his angel to declare these glad tidings unto us as unto our children or as after the time of his coming? Today's mortals, born long after the time of his first coming, surely need to know of the plan, which gives, said the Prophet Joseph, a comprehensive view of the condition of man and our true relation to God. The Prophet said this subject should be studied more than any other, day and night. God's plan, however, is not something to be deduced by logic alone, nor is human experience deep enough or long enough to inform us adequately. It requires revelation from God. Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of Him! And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways, and no man knoweth of his ways, save it shall be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. How else would we really know the truth of who we really were, really are, and really will be? There can be no true felicity without true identity. Therefore, the process of revelation typically involves angels and prophets. Several times in the closing period of his life, Joseph Smith noted the fourteen years of particularly intensive revelation which he had experienced, including angelic visitations. The Restoration's Messiah-centered scriptures expand mankind's spiritual memories significantly and further educate us concerning the unfolding of God's plan ever since the world began. The Restoration has provided sweeping sermons about God's plan with its rescuing Redeemer, such as from Moses, Abinadi, Ether, Alma, Ammon, and Aaron. These answer the rhetorical question of one prophet who said, Why not speak of the Atonement of Christ? Brothers and sisters, given man's true self-interest, why should we really speak much of anything else? He who truly searches the scriptures will surely see how they testify of Christ, 
he will also see how interactive and cross-supportive the scriptures are. If some see not, it will be because they sought it not by faith, but instead stared uncomprehendingly with slit-eyed skepticism. Said Jesus to the unseeing, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Those who understood and believed not that which Moses wrote did not, in effect, believe this which Jesus spoke. This episode underscores the important words of Mormon about the relationship of the biblical record and the Book of Mormon. For behold, this is written for the intent that ye will believe that, and if ye believe that, ye will believe this also. Mutually supportive, the scriptures produce much needed historical perspective concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them. The various scriptures tell us vital things about God's tender mercies and his dealings with our predecessors. What is past is truly prologue. Hence, an unvarying, all-seeing God, desiring to save mercurial and myopic man, is not interested in our retroactive adulation, but in, pro in preventing our prospective ruination. Thus it is from the scriptures that we learn of God's plans for mankind on this planet. He told us through Isaiah that he formed this earth to be inhabited. Through Moses, God described his purpose to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Furthermore, by viewing the heavens and the galaxies, those who have eyes to see will see God moving in his majesty and power. We are thus enveloped in a planned universe, and we live on a purposeful planet, and these truths describe things as they really are. No wonder the gospel is such glorious and good news. If ever a generation needed this precious perspective, our severed generation does. If ever a generation needed to be saved from itself, ours does. Surely these needs will intensify as the bewildered and beset nations of the earth, as foreseen by Jesus, wallow hopelessly in distress with perplexity. In fact, we misread and misuse life except with this plain and precious perspective of the gospel which puts the things of the world in their lesser places. Then, on that essentially unchanging mortal stage, we can see things for what they really are, such as the demanding cadence called by the cares of the world, like birds and animals performing some inborn ritual, amusing to everyone but the participants. These maneuverings of materialism would be comedy if they were not tragedy. So would the posturings as to power and the thirsty seeking of the praise of the world. The ploys are so transparent when seen in the gospel's light. Nevertheless, why are the ways of the world felt even by serious disciples so insistently and so incessantly? Could it be that in the far distant premortal past, having admired the Father and having seen his glory, we now unconsciously envy his glory? Yet, if we really wish to share in his kingdom, 
Why do we sternly resist what the revelations tell us of the required preparatory schooling and the risks of unrighteous power? God's ultimate power is safe precisely because He possesses ultimate love, justice, mercy, and knowledge. We cannot share in His power without sharing in His attributes. But, we may say, do we not have His spiritual genes? Yes, but we do not have His gentleness. Yet we are of His spiritual lineage. Yes, but we do not have His capacity to love. Surely we belong to Him, of course, but we cannot re-enter His house until our behavior would let us feel at home. No wonder the prophets are repetitious in their warnings. After all, if one were permitted only a few surviving lines to family, friends, and posterity, those might be headlines. Sometimes what comes is almost a warning shout, especially when hearers are unstirred by the still, small voice. Besides, the prophets who are the major makers of our spiritual memory saw not only their own times, but ours as well. They have communicated with us as if ye were present, for behold, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know your doing. Little wonder that the Prophet Joseph Smith, in his last witnessing words from Carthage Jail the night before he was slain, bore powerful testimony to the guards of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon, the restoration of the gospel, and the administration of angels. How else would we really have known about what God had appointed unto man, the plan of redemption? When searched, the scriptural truths of the unfolding plan of salvation are both electrifying and subduing. Gratefully pondered, they lead to lyrical expressions, such as in the 1842 litany by the Prophet Joseph Smith. And again, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Kumora. Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, the book to be revealed, a voice of the Lord in the wilderness, declaring the three witnesses to bear record of the book, the voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna, the voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness, declaring themselves as possessing the keys of the kingdom and of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Future revelations, brothers and sisters, will include astounding events as well as great and important truths, so much so that Moses' and Israel's exulting song after safely crossing the Red Sea and the Prophet Joseph's 1842 litany will gladly give way to the crescendo of glorious events associated with Christ's coming in majesty and power. The Valley of Adabondiamon will ring again, this time with the sounds of dispensational reunion as it glows with gathering. Those of Enoch's utterly unique city of one heart will greet those of the new Zion with holy embraces and holy kisses amid the sounds of sweet sobbing. And the hill shall tremble at the presence of the lost tribes, and hearts as well as ice will melt as they come, filled with songs of everlasting joy. And it will all occur under the direction 
of the Redeemer of Israel, our only delight. Hence, as children of Zion, good tidings for us. The hour of redemption is near. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.